Well, Father, we thank you so much that your word is active, that it is alive, that you've revealed yourself to us. And so even as we come to a passage this morning like Nehemiah 3, I pray that we would see you in it, that we would see how you've used uh, the nation of Israel, you've used uh, men like Nehemiah in order to fulfill your mission in this world. And Lord, I pray that ultimately we would see Christ in this passage this morning. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you know me very well, you know that I love my car. For those of you who may not know me very well, or maybe you don't know what kind of car I own, I drive a sweet lunar silver 2009 Honda Fit. Exactly. Uh, Rob Gordon, one of my friends, he drums sometimes. He's not that good. He calls it a clown car. And he is wrong, okay? It is not a clown car. Let me explain to you why this car is so great. It is affordable. It's economical. It is reliable. And it is functional. What more could you ask for in a car, right? Honestly, it is the whole package. And those of you out there who own a Honda Fit totally know what I'm talking about. It's a revolutionary design. Um, but unfortunately, it is, like I said, it's a 2009. And as all of us probably know, as cars get older, more things tend to go wrong with them. And I was reminded of this fact actually just a couple weeks ago. I was driving down the road and my check engine light turned on. So I luckily was pretty close to an auto parts store, so I kind of drove the car over there, pulled in. I had them run a diagnostic. And sure enough, one of my coils was going bad. Now, for those of you who don't know very much about engines or you uh, don't know what a coil is, all you really need to know is that your engine has multiple coils, one per cylinder. And if even one of those coils is not working correctly or not working at all, your engine is not really going to function like it's supposed to. So this was something that I needed to replace right away, right? This couldn't, this couldn't really wait. So I ordered the part. I picked it up later that afternoon. And I slowly and carefully drove my half-functioning Honda Fit home, pulled into the garage, you know, opened the, opened the hood and started uh, the process of replacing this coil. Now, like I said, I love my car. It is nearly perfect. The only downside of this car is that it's not, it's not small, it is compact. And uh, that is also true for the engine bay, all right? The engine bay is about the size of this podium. And uh, it's got like a motorcycle engine almost in it. And so to get to the coils, they are basically on the back of the engine. And I have to remove the windshield wipers, the wiper motor, okay? I have to remove a heat shield. I have to remove a couple other, uh, a couple other small pieces of plastic and, and shielding and things like that and molding and remove all these bolts. So I do all that. I lay it to the side, you know. I, I get to the coil. I take the old one out. I put the new one in. And then I put everything back in its place where it goes. So you can imagine I'm feeling pretty good about myself at this point right? I, uh, I go inside. I, I brag to Abby that I finally got the car working again. She pretended like she cared. It was great. And I go back out to the garage 
And I'm going to start cleaning everything up, you know, pick up all my tools. And my confidence just starts to disintegrate. Because on the floor, next to some of my tools, is a single bolt laughing at me. I have no idea where this bolt goes. I have no idea how important it is to the functioning of the car. And I have no idea how long it's going to take me to find out any of that, right? I have no idea how long it's going to take me to find out how important that bolt really was uh, or where it goes. And some of you maybe have had a similar experience. Maybe you've been working on your car uh, and you, you think you've finished and you find out there are, in fact, more pieces that go in it. Uh, maybe you've worked on furniture, particularly Ikea furniture, right? Uh, the, the Swedes know how to make furniture, but it's not easy. And, uh, you know, you finish the project, you look back, and there's like pieces on the floor still. And you're just kind of left going, what do I do with these? Where do these go? How important were these to the project? Did I do something wrong, right? I don't know. And the reason that I, that I kind of share all this and, and, and just very humbly come before you and tell you I'm actually not as good as working on cars as I thought I was is that we tend to experience a similar thing when we approach the Bible, right? We develop this really good theology and, you know, included in that is, you know, we've got the Gospels and we've got Genesis, we've got Romans and Ephesians. If we're really good, we even get Revelation in there, you know, that's when we really know our theology is noise, right? Um, And then we come to a passage like Nehemiah 3, And we go, what do I do with this? Where does this go? How important is this? Well, the Apostle Paul actually starts to at least answer that question for us. And in 2 Timothy 3, his second letter to this this man, Timothy, who he's kind of mentoring, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says this, He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for the Christian. So, Nehemiah 3 is breathed out by God, believe it or not. And Nehemiah 3 is profitable for the Christian. Now, we we know that every book, and here's, here's why this is all important, we know that every book has a human author, behind it, right? There's, there's a particular person who's writing a particular book at a particular point in history. But when we read a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we are also reminded that every book of the Bible doesn't just have a human author, it has a divine author that is carrying along those authors as they write these books. And so even though the Bible is made up of many books, is made up of many stories, we can also say that the Bible is actually one book, that it's made up of one story. It has one narrative arc 
that God is kind of weaving into every single book, chapter, and verse. Every book is pointing to God's redemptive plan in history. Every book is revealing God to us in a unique but specific way. And, and if we don't understand that reality, then I, I think we, we potentially run the risk of making two big mistakes in terms of how we understand and how we read the Bible. So the first is that we can oversimplify the Bible. We can oversimplify it. We, we approach the Bible. Tim Keller kind of has this astrolog- uh, uh, analogy. We can approach the Bible kind of like we approach Aesop's fables. Right, So the Bible is kind of a book of morals and principles. And so when we read it, we pull out a moral or we pull out a principle. And that was the point. That was the point of the passage. That was the point of the book. Right? And so if we were to do this in Nehemiah 3 then, we know Nehemiah is a great leader. And when we read Nehemiah 3, we see, you know, he didn't do it all on his own. He had a team around him. And so if we want to be good leaders, we need to have a team around us too. Right? That would be an example of maybe how we could take this passage at very surface level and, and just kind of pull out an oversimplified kind of view of this passage. I've been guilty of this. In fact, I was actually looking back at my notes on Nehemiah. I studied this book on my own um, just a couple years ago. And I, and I found my old notes on Nehemiah 3. And this is what I wrote. Whole chapter. These are all my notes. Nehemiah's leadership succeeds because of his ability to delegate the task of rebuilding the nation of Israel, period. That was it. Those were my notes on all 32 verses of Nehemiah 3. That was all I learned, apparently, two years ago from this chapter. So that is an example of oversimplifying this passage, of just kind of scratching the surface. The second mistake that I think we can make, if we don't understand this kind of dual authorship of the Bible, is not only could we oversimplify, we can actually over-spiritualize the Bible. This would kind of be the opposite, almost, of oversimplifying. So when we over-spiritualize, we can take every single detail and word, and it has some kind of spiritual significance for us. So in this, in this scenario, the Bible kind of becomes... Um, sort of an allegory for our everyday lives, right? Everything has to do with something about us, something about our lives. So if we were to over-spiritualize Nehemiah 3 then, I might start asking you questions like, what's the sheep gate in your life? Most of you are saying, what's a sheep gate in real life? I don't know, you know? How do I apply that? I have no idea. I don't know what it is. But if we understand that the Bible has a divine author, a single author, who in every book is tracing out his plan of redemption, then we'll start to see how even a book like Nehemiah and even a chapter like Nehemiah 3 is pointing to that plan and pointing to how God is going to work in that plan, even how he's called us to work in that plan. Chris has actually already kind of started to to, to point to this if you remember last week when he was finishing up Nehemiah 2, he, he made this statement uh, in, in the very last part of his, of his sermon. And he said, what we're going to see with Nehemiah, the person, is that he is pointing us to Christ. Jesus is actually going to be a better Nehemiah. 
So for example, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king, right? I mean, like he's like secondhand man to King Artaxerxes, high up in his authority. He is going to leave an earthly kingdom and an earthly position in order to save and restore God's people. That's what we're going to see Nehemiah do throughout the course of this book in, in very short summary. Jesus is going to leave a heavenly kingdom. He's going to leave a heavenly position in order to save and restore God's people. Nehemiah is, uh, is going to risk his own life. We're especially going to see this in the, in the coming chapters here. He's going to risk his own life in order to protect the people and fulfill the mission of God. But then later, we're going to see 400 years later, Jesus is not just going to risk his own life. He's going to give his own life in order to protect God's people, save them, and fulfill God's mission in the world. And in fact, even Jerusalem, the city that's being rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah, is actually pointing forward to something greater that's, the com that's to come through Christ. And this is really what I, I want us to focus on for most of our time this morning. So if you look at what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 26.1, he says this about the city of God. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And then if you actually go to uh, another book of prophecy, the book of Zechariah, he makes another interesting statement in Zechariah 2, uh, 4 through 5. So here we have Zechariah receiving a vision and he sees two angels. And in this vision, one of the angels says to the other, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. This is interesting to me because Isaiah and Zechariah are written before all of the events in Nehemiah. So even as the people of Israel are rebuilding this wall in the book of Nehemiah, in, in Nehemiah 3, even as they're building these walls around Jerusalem, there is already a vision that's being cast for a day when the people of God will actually extend beyond these walls. They will go beyond just the, the physical city of Jerusalem. There will come a day when the walls around God's city are not built with brick and mortar, but they are built with salvation through Jesus Christ. In Christ, we will be made citizens of God's kingdom and its walls will protect us. In fact, when, when you trace this kind of theme, and we don't, we don't have time to like spend a ton of time on this this morning, unfortunately, but if you even trace this theme throughout the Bible of, of God building walls or God being a fortress, we even read about it this morning in Psalm and then we sang about it, God being this mighty fortress, you're going to see that, that not only is, is God building these walls of salvation, but those that are within these walls are considered holy 
They're considered protected. And they're not protected from, you know, enemy nations anymore. It's much more significant than that. Now they're protected from sin and death itself, right? This is going to be an eternal city. This is going to be a city that receives eternal salvation. That is what Nehemiah 3 is pointing to. It's pointing to a day, and I would say it's our day, today, right now, when God's kingdom isn't defined by walls, literal walls. It's defined by people. So if you are in Christ, you are a part of God's holy kingdom. And just like we see the people of Israel rebuilding and establishing and restoring the walls of Jerusalem, you are called to be a builder of God's kingdom through the gospel. You are called to play a part in the building up of these walls of salvation that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 26. So with that lens, let's actually look at Nehemiah 3. And we'll see what, uh, what we learn here about building God's kingdom together. I think that, that when, we, when we do that, actually, we're going to find three lessons for ourselves this morning. The first one is that building God's kingdom requires unity. Building God's kingdom requires unity. So as you read through Nehemiah, you might notice uh, that there's a pattern in the listing of all these names. Nehemiah likes to use this phrase, and next to them. So you have, you know, kind of a, a name of a person or a group, what part of the wall they were working on, and then it says, and next to them, this guy, this is his name. He was working on this part of the wall. And next to him was this guy working on this part of the wall. And next to them were these groups of people working on this part of the wall. And next to them, and next to them. What is Nehemiah trying to communicate when he kind of uses this repetition over and over, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them? He's trying to tell us everyone is involved in the completion of this wall. Everyone is involved in the establishment of God's holy city. Everyone is, is working together and contributing in order to make God's kingdom great. In, in fact, when we look at the list of people mentioned here, we, we really start to see just this incredible diversity represented in the people of Israel and the work that's being done. The chapter starts off with the priests, Right? It says that the priests are coming and they're building the sheep gate, but it doesn't end there. Right? This is not a task that's given and delegated just to uh, the, the specific spiritual leaders of the nation. Right? It's not just their responsibility to rebuild this kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 9, you see a political leader, Raphiah. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Contributing to the building. In, in verse 12, you see another political leader, Shalem, and he's bringing his daughters with him. And together, they're actually working on the wall together. So this is becoming like a family event, right? They're all, they're all coming together and starting to contribute to this task at hand. At the beginning of verse 8, you have a goldsmith. He's working on the wall. At the end of verse 8, you have what is called a perfumer working on the wall. So where are my essential oilers at? You have a place in God's kingdom. I don't think that's actually what this verse is saying. I should probably make that clear. Um, 
Now, if we read all of this and just kind of come to the conclusion, wow, Nehemiah was a great delegator. I mean, just look at all these people that he's just given all these tasks to. I think that we would, again, be oversimplifying this passage, that we'd be just scratching the surface. And I was actually listening to a guy, Andrew Wilson, He's British, so he's easy, easy to listen to. And, uh, and he was speaking on Nehemiah 3. And he said, actually, if you think that this chapter is about Nehemiah's leadership, you are absolutely wrong. This is the exact opposite of being about Nehemiah. And the more that he explained his reasoning, actually, the more that I've come to agree with him. Because when you read through this list of people, all the different names, all the different descriptions. You know who you don't see represented? Nehemiah. Now, there is a Nehemiah in verse 16. It is not the same Nehemiah that the book is named after, so don't email me. But uh, you see all these different people who are collectively using their gifts in order to rebuild God's kingdom. This is not about Nehemiah, the great leader. This chapter, Nehemiah 3, is meant to show the skills and abilities of all God's people. That building the kingdom of God is a group effort. You see, unity in God's kingdom does not just mean that we're all on the same page mentally. It doesn't mean that we're just all thinking the same way. It doesn't mean that as a church, we, we all just agree on the, the, the finer points of doctrine uh, in the church, or we all agree on the, the plans and strategies we're going to implement as a church. Not saying that that's not part of unity, but that is not all biblical unity is. Biblical unity means that we actually together contribute to the task at hand, that all of us use our gifts, all of us use our abilities, all of us use our hands and feet in order to build the kingdom of God. You know, you have all different kinds of professions represented in, in Nehemiah 3. You have all different kinds of backgrounds and social statuses and life stages that's represented in Nehemiah 3. And yet when the time came, all of these people put all of those titles to the side. And they said, today, above all else, we are going to be builders. We are going to be builders of God's kingdom. And friends, if you are in Christ, you are called to be a builder of God's kingdom. You are called to gospel ministry alongside Every other Christian that is in this room, you are all called to collectively contribute to building the kingdom of God. And, and let me just say, when we start to see one another as, as, as not just friends, but equal contributors in the kingdom of God, there is going to be a bond that is beyond anything else that you've experienced in terms of relating to one another. There is a bond that the Holy Spirit brings when together we are all focused on completing the same mission. Building God's kingdom requires that kind of unity. Here's the second thing that we, that we learn here. Building God's kingdom means putting the mission first. 
It means putting the mission first. Again, as, as we read through Nehemiah 3, we're, or as we read through it, we're going to, uh, to see that not, um, we're going to see just not a variety of people, not a variety of names. We're also going to see a variety of tasks that are kind of given out, that are assigned to these individuals. And not all of them are glamorous. This is no more true than in uh, verse 14 with Malchiah, my guy, my personal hero. He commits himself to building what the Bible calls the dung gate. Now, I don't know if he volunteered for this task or if this was something that was assigned to him. You would think it's the latter, right? I don't know. But either way, we know that he was faithful to the task. We know that, that he completed that mission, the way that verse 14 concludes. It says, he was assigned to the Dungate or he was building the Dungate. That's what he did. And, and what's interesting too about this particular guy, Malchiah, is that verse 14 actually describes him as a ruler of one of the districts of Judah. So, so he's got some kind of, uh, some, some political coin, right? I mean, he's got some, some influence and some authority in this culture, in, in this nation, and in this city. And yet the way that he contributes to this task is by rebuilding the dung gate. That is his mark that he leaves on this particular story. And in fact, one thing that's fascinating, to me anyway, about this list of people in Nehemiah 3 is that it describes all different kinds of occupations all different kinds of, of professions. So you've got priests, you've got rulers, goldsmiths, perfumers, whoop, whoop, right? Temple servants, gatekeepers, merchants, all these different professions. And, and ironically, the one profession, the one skill that you don't see actually listed is craftsman or mason or carpenter. So as far as we know, when we read this chapter, there is not one guy who can actually say, my expertise align with the mission that's being completed. Yet every single one of them is faithful in completing the task. Every single one of them says, whatever you give me, that is what I'll do. That is what I'll complete. In other words, the people of Israel seem more concerned with completing the mission as a whole and seeing that the task is finished than they are with, with how they'll be used in that mission and what task they'll be given. They are collectively focused on a single mission. That is what they care about. Here's why this is important for us to recognize. When we see an opportunity to serve in the church, or we see an opportunity to build God's kingdom and contribute to God's kingdom, we tend to ask ourselves a few, a few questions. Where am I comfortable? That might be one. Where am I experienced? Here's another big one. Where am I gifted? How many of us have ever turned down a serving opportunity because it just didn't fit with our giftings. 
How many of us have been turned down from a position because it didn't fit our giftings? Now, by God's grace, there, there's definitely times where your, your gifting kind of naturally aligns with whatever's needed. And that's a huge blessing, right? In fact, I would say a lot of times that's preferred. We would love to use your gifts. But the better question for us to ask when it comes to serving the church and when it comes to building God's kingdom is not just, what is my gifting? But it's, what does the church need? What does the kingdom need? That's what I'm going to do. And that was really a question I had to ask myself just a couple years ago. And I've asked, I've asked myself that question many other times, uh, not that long ago, but, but especially a couple years ago. I was still a pastoral resident here at, uh, at the church. And if you had asked me at that time, Joel, do you ever see yourself going into student ministry? I would have said, not if I can help it. That is, that's real. I'm just being honest with you, right? I, I literally had gotten that question asked of me. I had literally given that response before. And as my residency kind of came to a close, the church continued to grow. And, and Chris talked to me and said, you know what this church really needs, Joel? Is a full-time director of student ministry. I had a hard time with that. But God convicted me in that moment. And he said through his word and through other people, if you are really passionate about the gospel, you are going to be passionate about teaching it in whatever setting God gives you and with whatever group you're in front of. So I applied for the role. I met with the elders. I, I interviewed and I was offered the role and I accepted and this amazing thing happened as I started to get more and more involved with the student ministry. God stretched me and challenged me, and he equipped me in order to actually be faithful to the task that I had to complete in that role and in that position. But what's, what's even more amazing is that not only did he equip me, right? Not only did he just make me able to do the things that I needed to do. He actually instilled in me a passion for that ministry. And I can actually say to you today, I enjoy spending time with most of our students, <laughs> right? Which is pretty good, like above 50%. That's pretty good. But in all seriousness, if you're a student or if you're a parent, I, just, I, I really do love you, okay? I was just kidding. Uh, but, but the reason that I tell you that is because building God's kingdom means putting the mission first. And when you put the mission first, God will equip you and give you all that you need in order to be faithful to the task at hand. Here's the third and, and final thing that we learn in Nehemiah 3. Building God's kingdom starts in your backyard. Building God's kingdom starts in your backyard. This is not a plea for backyard Bible clubs. That is coming, so prepare your heart. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. So we've already talked about how Nehemiah likes to use this phrase throughout the chapter of next to them and next to them and next to them, right? And he's trying to communicate kind of this unity that's established in the people. 
But towards the end of the chapter, he also, uh, this, this new phrase kind of boils to the surface. And I'll see actually if you can kind of pinpoint it. So in verse 23, for example, it says that Benjamin and Hasheb repaired opposite their house. And then Aziriah repaired beside his own house. In verse 28, it says that the priests each repaired opposite his own house. In verse 29, Zadok repaired opposite his own house. In verse 30, Meshulam repaired opposite his chamber. So hopefully you kind of pick up on this pattern that's coming out. The task of rebuilding God's kingdom and the everyday lives of these men were inseparable. They would literally step out of their door and see the mission of God in front of them. And the way that they divided their roles when it came to fulfilling this mission was actually by their geographical location in the city. That is how they knew what they were responsible for in completing the mission of God. Here's what we learn from this. God has placed us in particular locations at a particular time. He has placed us in homes and neighborhoods throughout the city, throughout Hamilton County. He has placed us in jobs and workspaces in Fishers and Carmel and Noblesville and Indianapolis. He's given us these, these physical spaces, these physical places in which we live our lives. And that is where we can start building the kingdom of God. That is where we can start building up these walls of salvation that Isaiah talks about. Walls that will stand for eternity. That is what it means to be a builder of God's kingdom. That is what Nehemiah 3 is pointing to. That is what Nehemiah 3 has for us today. Christ has come to establish a new kingdom. One whose borders aren't defined by stone, but they are defined by Christ, the cornerstone. And their walls are everlasting. Their citizens are called holy. And so my question for us this morning is will you commit your life to being a builder of that kingdom? I pray that all of us would say yes to that and that we do it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have established a new kingdom through Jesus. We, we thank you so much that, Lord, that, that kingdom does not have physical walls, but it breaks out of any physical barrier you could put to it, that it goes far beyond any wall that you could build because it is a spirit-empowered, Christ-centered kingdom. And I pray that we would see ourselves as, as tasked with building up that kingdom right now, that this is not something for the professionals. This is not something for uh, the, the well-trained. This is something for every single Christian, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we could begin building walls of salvation in our communities. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.